Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And joining me as always, we got my guy Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 26, headlined by a short notice main event between Marina Rodriguez and Michelle Watterson. They're going up a weight class just to fill in for Corey Sanhagen and TJ Dillashaw this week. Luckily, that fight's being postponed, so we still get to see that one. But this one, a lot of people were shitting on it. I'm actually kind of excited for it. I think that they have some two good styles. They match up pretty well. They should produce some fireworks. I'm liking the under in this fight. We'll obviously talk about it once we get to that fight. But I think we got some violence. I think we're going to get a uh, finish in this fight. How are you liking this new main event, Cody? Obviously, it's not Sanhagen and Dillashaw. But on the, 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 the less than a week's notice that we got for it, it's not too bad, right? Listen, Sanhagen Dillashaw could have been a co-main event on a big pay-per-view. That's a fight that everybody wanted to see. They're going to be very entertaining. So losing that, you know, it's definitely a problem. But the Diego Sanchez for Josh Padian thing the whole week, like, <laughs> oh, man, like, that, that's what killed me. I really want to see Diego Sanchez versus Donald Cerrone. Bit of bad blood. Two uh, entertainers, two guys that are fan favorites that have been around for a very, very long time. And then so to have a legend versus legend fight fall out and be Donald Cerrone versus Alex Morono. And that's, that's the three-round co-main event to Marina Rodriguez versus Michelle Watterson. Yeah, does it feel like a letdown? Sure. This is a great combat sports weekend. we got PFL tonight, obviously, Bellator tomorrow, and uh, UFC on Saturday. So uh, if you don't like certain spots, you can pick and choose, mix and match, kind of do what you feel best. But yeah, I'm excited as I always am. Yeah, I know you're most excited just because we have the PFL, Bellator, UFC back-to-back-to-back, so you can get some crazy parlays out of this shit. And I know your PRP is still alive right now with PFL. I know you got it on in the background, as do I. Hopefully my stream keeps up, uh, but we'll definitely be watching that in the background. This might be a little bit more of an abbreviated episode for you guys, but we're going to get through this, give you guys the best props that we can for this card, and hopefully put some more cash in your pockets for the UFC fights this weekend. As always, I do want to remind you guys, hit that like, hit that uh, subscribe, do all that shit show the support for the show and we'll keep this thing going on a week-to-week basis all right let's not waste too much time let's get the first fight out of the way we got carlson harris going again against christian aguilera obviously carlson harris wow dana white on looking for a fight last time around where he was able to turn away uh, a 17 and one russian who probably wasn't in, in a spot to go out there and try to showcase himself uh again uh for dana white unfortunately he gets darts choked and carlson harris ends up being the one that gets the contract and now here he is making his debut against christian aguilera who's one and one in the ufc i faded him in his debut against anthony ivy paid for that pretty much immediately 59 seconds and we say aguilera get that knockout but i was expecting the same type of approach that carlson harris is going to be taking here from Anthony Ivy, but I will say I feel more comfortable with Harris, given that he doesn't seem as uncomfortable on the feet. He seems to have a little bit better striking defense. Seems like he has the ability to get the fight to the ground, or at least push us up against the cage, like he did for five rounds against Carl Booth. He has the cardio to do it. He has the acumen to do it. Uh, has a couple of notable wins on his regional record as well. Michelle Pereira being one of them, uh, Wellington Terman being the other one. So he has some quality wins on his record. Now it's time for him to go out there and, and do it in the UFC. Uh, first ever Guyanese fighter inside the UFC, which is a great uh, look for him. And I think he he starts this off on on a winning uh, on the winning side. I think. Um, I think he goes out there and grinds this out. I'm going to give Christian Aguilera the benefit of the doubt. I think he will be able to survive the the submission onslaught here from Harris. I think that Sean Brady is on a completely different level, which is why he was able to snatch up that one-armed guillotine, beautiful guillotine. But this, the prop that I'm looking at the most here is, uh, first and foremost, the over one and a half, minus 165. I think that's a great line. And then obviously Harris by decision, I got at plus 285. I think those are great props on my side. 
Cody, how are you seeing this one? Yeah, I'm going to agree for the most part. I think with Christian Aguilera, the thing is he's a press-forward, aggressive, in-your-face type fighter. He just doesn't quite have the chin <clears throat> to keep up that kind of game plan for the course of 15 minutes. You know, I liken him to a common worthy and that he does have big power. The majority of his wins are by knockout. He's a dangerous opponent to stand in front of, but he just doesn't have a chin. He doesn't have any durability. You look at his losses, Darren Smith Jr., first-round knockout. Uh, Matt Sales, first-round knockout. Richard Leroy, first-round knockout. David Mashad, first-round knockout. And then he comes into his fight against Sean Brady and gets submitted in the second round. It, 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 it's not good. It, this is, screams a guy that his best pass victory is stand in front of you and bang. Just doesn't have the chin to hold up with that. His takedown defense, not very good. Sean Brady went two for two takedowns. Got him down with relative ease. It's when he did get him to the ground. He just styled upon him. I mean, there was really no area for Aguilera to explode and get back up. There was a very few space in between. Mind you, Brady's a high-level BJJ black belt, so you give him a pass there. And the one-arm guillotine comes to fruition. Pretty dope. When you look at Carlson Harris, you know, at first glance, it's like, geez, this is the first fighter from Guyana coming to the UFC. And, you know, he's still he's making his debut, and he's going to be raw, and he's going to still be green, and he needs to develop a little bit more. But he's already 33 years old. He's seasoned. He's been there. He's done that. As you mentioned, he's got a couple big wins. He beat Michelle Pereira. He beat Wellington Terman. But beyond that, the guys that you might not have heard of, we're all still good. Tiago Vieira, 8-1. and one. Carl Booth from England, 7-1. and one. He's lost to draw Hussein Al-Sawali. Sawali is legit, man. Very, very good. Brave CF champion just beat uh, Nordia at 160-pound catchweight. They have like a catchweight title over there. It's called like super welterweight or something. Yeah. Maybe it's 175. Anyways, it's like th this guy's defeating good fighters. Now, you look at that card that Dana White's looking for a fight. It's They're on Fight Island. It's the night before the UFC's card. Dana White's in town. Habib's down there. They're having a good time. The Russian fighters were 8-0 against foreign opposition leading in into that main event. Carlson Harris is the guy that goes out there and gets the submission. I think he's very strong. He's got good cardio. He's a physically imposing guy. Like, when he gets a hold of you, he's able to wrangle you to the ground. And his submission skills seem pretty good. So I think that Aguilar is going to have trouble stuffing the takedowns. Once he gets taken down, he's, it's going to be Carlson having his way up from top position. And if, for whatever reason, Aguilera finds a groove and starts swinging, you know, at him standing is able to press him a little bit. I, I'm still not just sold on his, his chin and his ability to take any damage. So I got Carlson Harris. I don't love that over two and a half. I don't love this fight to go the distance. I feel like Harris is going to have some success. The longer he's able to wear him down, the longer he's able to beat on him, the more that this submission opens up. He loves the Darce choke. He loves attacking the neck. And you see from a guy getting caught in a one-arm guillotine, it's because he left his neck exposed. So I think Carlson Harris is live for that. Looking at this decision prop, or sorry, this is a submission prop. Harris is plus 165 by submission. As far as a plus money sub goes, as far as a plus money prop goes, uh, that, that's one that I don't mind. So that's what I'm looking at for this one. All right. It looks like you're shitting on Aguilar a little bit more than I am, but I completely <laughs> understand what the, what the side that you're coming from, especially considering I was pretty heavy on Anthony Ivy in that debut. Maybe that's scaring me a little bit too much, but I do think that Harris is the real deal and he should definitely get the win in his UFC debut here. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Tafan Chukwi going up against Junyun Park. In terms of odds, we got minus 140 on Chukwi and plus 120 on Park. He did open up. Uh, this is Chukwi. He did open up as a minus 170 favorite and he's gotten betting down to minus 140 and I absolutely agree with the public underdog here in Jun Young Park as I think that he can put on a base on Chukwi. <clears throat> the, the thing with Chukwi is 5-0, oh, 
four knockouts. Uh, one of those decisions, obviously, his last fight against Jamie Pickett. But in all of those fights, he's the one able to intimidate his opponents and allow himself to set the pace rather than his opponents who kind of just let him do what he wants to do. I feel like we're going to get a slightly better guy here in Junior Park who should be able to push the pace on him, set the pace himself, put the jab out there, hopefully mix in a couple takedowns later in the fight. I'm not 100% sure he'll actually be able to succeed on those. But I do think that he should be able to start controlling uh, Chukwi the longer that this fight goes. Uh, Chukwi is a, is a unit, right? Like we, we can all agree on that. And he does have some good striking combinations and he has some good Muay Thai. But I think that he's going to struggle with the pace that Park is going to set here. Now, a lot of people might be like, oh, he fucking wrecked John Phillips in his last fight. How can you take that into this fight? I don't take much from that fight. I take the I take the fact that he was able to control him for 13 minutes without much uh, resistance there. And he went out there and did what he was supposed to do against a guy like that. And that's all you can hope from these guys, right? Like, they're at the mercy of the matchmakers. They don't choose who they're fighting. They just get who's in front of them. And then they uh, go out there and uh, put on the performance that they're supposed to do. And, you know, he did great against John Phillips, did great against uh, Marc-Andre Barrio. And if anything, I, I think Barrio is a slightly more... Uh, dangerous matchup here for, for Park than Tafan just because of the the one dimensional side that I see of Tafan. I think he's just a power striker, good combinations, good at setting the pace when his opponents allow him to. But I don't think we're going to get Park allowing him to do that. Uh, the props that I like, I like the over two and a half. I think Park is quite durable. Only times he's been finished is by <laughs> submission. Um, never been knocked out in his career. <clears throat> And then fight goes to decision minus 110. I think that's a solid spot. And then obviously when you want to pick a side, I'd be going park by decision at plus 250. I really like that spot. Talk me down. Am I too high on park here? What do you see in Tafan? No, I don't think you're too high on Park. I think that he's got a live chance of victory here. And being that he's the iron turtle, right? He's super durable. That might be his, his, his best uh, quality is that the guy can take a punch and he's got a decent cardio. And so a guy like Njikui is that he's so talented, he's so raw, and that he's this one-dimensional power puncher, so to speak. If he doesn't take you out, that's where you're going to have some time. That's where you're going to be able to work this guy over a little bit. With Njikui is that he's super young, man. He's 26 years old. I mean, he got into MMA a little doesn't bit look late. Like he it. from a kickboxing <laughs> background. Yeah, but but even then, he was only like 10-0 and in kickboxing. He didn't have like a super deep pedigree. Comes to MMA, you know, links up with Team Lloyd Irvin. I'm sure they're working on his grappling skills, but at his fundamental skill set is to strike. And he he's slow, he's a little bit lumbering, but by God, when he hits guys, I mean, they, they topple over. As far as his amateur career, or sorry, his professional career goes, the early regional show days, yeah, that's 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 the note on him. I mean, he's he's knocking these guys out in the first or early in the second round. He picks up the win over William Knight. That's that's good. That fight comes out of like a catch weight. He weighs in at two twenty two. Then you see him cut down to two hundred and five pounds for contender series against Al Montalvo, who he didn't look great against. And he knocks him out with a second round head kick, but he got fatigued in that second round. His output starts to fall off. He is slow, like I mentioned. And then you got a UFC debut against Jamie Pickett. Now, one thing that I, I hate to give to my own horn or anything like that, but one thing it was for with the Jamie Pickett fight was. No way I was picking Jamie Pickett. But Jamie Pickett had never been knocked out. And so the narrative on Jaquie is that like he, it's bang or bust. He has to knock you out or not. I was taking him. But beyond that, I want to hedge myself on a take him by decision. I think this guy's durable. I think he's got a good chin. I think Lower Durbin's definitely got his submission skills up to up to snuff. His takedown defense, I mean, he's definitely imposing for the first round, maybe two rounds. Can you tire him out after that? Sure. But I mean... I look at Park, and Park's not exactly a, a, a finesse finisher himself. I mean, he wailed on John Phillips with everything he had for 15 full minutes and couldn't take John Phillips out of there. I, I, I think that Njikui, worst-case scenario, is going to get grounded, going to get tired a little bit, going to get outworked against the fence and eventually lose a decision. But Park has the same characteristic that Jamie Pickett had. They've both never been knocked out. They're both durable fighters. 
Now, I'll admit, it was one hell of a sweat. Jamie Pickett got dropped. Jamie Pickett looked tired. Jamie looked, he, he looked hurt. But Njiqui, again, I mean, he's only 26. He's still learning on the job. He doesn't quite have that 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 finish. If he doesn't get you out of there right away, it's like he, there's no real plan B, and he starts to fatigue later that fight goes. Park's a much better fighter than Pickett. Doesn't have the same range and athleticism, but he's much more sturdy. You know, he's going to be able to come forward. He does really good pressing guys up against the cage and just grinding them there. Marcel Barrio, if anything with Marc-Andre Barrio, is that he is a thick unit of a man himself. You know, big, strong, rugged guy. Pressing him up against the cage and giving him no space to work with, it shows up you know, there is something to park. Taking down John Phillips and rinse and repeat that many strikes, even though Fight Metric only gave him like 15 significant strikes, uh, he lands like 260 strikes overall. You know, just it's a, it's a keep chipping away at your game plan. So while I will agree that it's live, probably live underdog park, the spot I'm looking at is fight go the distance, minus 110. I think if Njiqui wins, it'll be the same thing as the picket fight. You know, he keeps him honest with his striking, causes him to not make a stupid decision, keeps you at bay. But I don't think he knocks out Iron Turtle, Park. And flip side to that, if Park's going to win this fight, he's just going to be grinding him, killing time off the clock, getting him up against the cage, hopefully taking him down, hopefully tiring him out, getting him deeper waters. To that effect, if I was going to bet Park, I would take Park by decision, try to get a better, better price tag out of it, being that I just don't think that he finishes this fight. Not saying he can't win it. I agree he could win. But just even even in victory, it's looking like a decision. So for a prop that I like on this one specifically, because I myself am not taking Park, the official play here will just be fight goes the distance minus 110. I like it. I do see this fight again all 15 minutes here. Both guys are durable. Both guys are going to want to set their own pace, but I do think that we see it go to a decision. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Ryan Benoit going up against Zaruk Adashev. We got uh, tons of line movement here, right? Ryan Benoit opening up as a minus 175 favorite, similar to Tafon Chukwi, and now he's down to minus 120, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see the line flip come fight time. Now, I am on the Zaruk Adashev side. Uh, you know, it is not the greatest look to be backing a guy that's only 3-3 three and three in his professional MMA career, but let's cut the guy some slack with the type of opponents that he had in his UFC debut and his and in his sophomore fight too, right? You come in short notice against a you know higher weight class Tyson M, big power in his shots, obviously gets knocked out relatively quickly, and then goes out there and a lot of people you know screaming at me, hitting me up in the DMs. Why is Sumodarji not your lock of the night play inside the distance? I'm like. Let's cut the guy some slack. There's like, uh, you know, the, the Jacob Malkoon effect is what I like to call it. Like he goes out there and gets starched by Phil Hawes. Then you, he shows that he can take a punch and he has some decent durability. It was just an anomaly that night that he got knocked out the way that he did. And even though he goes on to lose his next fight, uh, he at least was able to make it to that 15-minute uh, uh, mark. Similar to KB Buller this past weekend, right? I, I really don't want to talk about his performance much, but the fact that he didn't go out there and get starched <laughs> immediately like a lot of people were expecting him to, you know, just shows that you, you can't put right. too much stock into the standing knockout. If it's a ground and pound knockout, completely different. But like standing knockouts are, they tend to be over-exaggerated in our head, especially with somebody that just comes off getting starched. With that said, Zaruk Adeshev, I believe he has a 17 to 20 fight kickboxing career. He had some time over there in glory. Seemed to be more of a point style uh, kickboxer compared to like searching for knockouts. Sure, over Ryan Benoit in the stand-up realm. And Ryan Benoit in his past couple fights has had to deal with guys that want to take him to the ground and kind of grind him out. He's not getting that here. The the funny thing is he might actually look to be the guy to take the fight to the ground, maybe start using that jujitsu that he's been getting from Gary Tonin and try to put it on display. Do you trust Ryan Benoit to do that, though? 
I, personally, I don't. So I'm going to be going on the uh, this Rook Adeshev side here. I do think this is a similar fight to the Park and Nchukwi fight where it does start to rack up some rounds and some minutes. The over 2.5 is only minus 190. Fight goes to decision is minus 165. But the spot that I like is the Rook Adeshev to win by decision, and that's at plus 246, plus 245 right now, and that's the side that I like the most. How are you liking this one? Yeah, so I can't disagree with you. I think the Zruk Adeshev is another one of these live underdogs on the card. We'll, we'll get to the rest of them. This card is chock full of dogs that certainly have a good chance. I think it's going to be a very uh, plus money heavy card. But Adeshev is one of these guys that, yeah, listen, his fundamental base is striking. We know that he's a striker. He's a former glory guy. But even in glory, I mean, again, not, not someone who has a wealth of kickboxing experience. He was still young, still developing. Fought for Bellator a few times. Won, was undefeated for Bellator. And yet they didn't offer him a contract. And then he steps in short notice to fight Tyson Nam. At three and one, should he have been in the UFC? No, but he steps up on short notice and they, they need bodies. So, you know, credit to him. He, he wants to step up. He wants to put a showing on. And, and Tyson Nam's got sneaky power for this division. Like if he touches you, he'll crumple you up. Promise he never lets his hands go. So you could equal chance that you probably just win a boring snooze fest decision over him. Or he actually lets his hands go and he hits you and he sparks you. On that night, he knocked out Adeshev. But again, for Zaruk Adeshev, who's supposed to be a credited kickboxer, that happened really quick. It did show the difference between kickboxing and MMA, right? MMA, you're using a four-ounce glove. The defense is way sharper. You can't just, you know, blanket yourself, try to cover up and take these shots. It's way more sharp and technical. The the Sumaderji fight, dude, I was one of those guys that was all in on Sumaderji is the absolute lock. But... I wasn't in on specifically on an inside the distance or a decision, you know, because like you mentioned, just because you got knocked out in your debuts that fast, it doesn't mean you're chinny per se. I know Tyson Nam's got a lot of power. Sumaderji, you know, he's he's a long, lankier guy. He doesn't generate as much power. So did he go out there and get the victory? Yeah, but Adeshev kept coming after him. And one has to imagine, Sruk Adeshev's 5'5 with a 65-inch reach, right? He was giving up seven inches in reach to Sumaderji. So he comes up short on the majority of his punches, has a good nice third punch. round, but ultimately does lose the fight, and I agree with that. But, but you got to think, dude, imagine he was fighting a guy relatively his height, relatively his size. Those punches wouldn't be missing a mile out. They'd be connecting. And this guy is a decent kickboxer. If he gets the right opponent, he can make it happen. And so he's 0-2 in the UFC, and now he's driving Ryan Bunnoy. Now, Ryan Bunnoy, once upon a time, knocked out Sergio Pettis, fighting tomorrow uh, his main event for the Bellator World title. But that was six years ago. And since then, he's gone 2-4. and four. Both of his wins, Sumar Mokhtarian, or Ashkan Mokhtarian, sorry, very, very low level. He actually lost the first round, got outstruck by him. Not a great look. Now, this is a guy that wrestled in high school. He's a state champion in Texas. He knows how to wrestle. He's been working on his grappling a lot. This is an element to his game that you just don't see. Call it poor ring IQ. Call it what you want to call it. Call it the Ryan Bunway effect. This guy just finds a way to be in way closer fights than he should be or find a way to lose. Even the Tim Elliott fight. I had people screaming robbery. Ryan Bunway won that fight. Did he? He could have. But he fights these bad game plans. That's that's the repetitive theme here. So when I think about the Zurich Adeshev fights, like, dude, you definitely want to take this fight to the ground. But if he opts not to, strong possibility he opts not to, then he's going to be striking with him. And when I mentioned that Adeshev would do a lot better against guy his size, well, there you go. He's got Ryan Benway, who's also 5'5", five 68-inch five, reach, so three inches on the reach department. But again, I think that if it's striker versus striker, Adeshev will have the advantage. It's up to Benway to force his hand and try to pursue takedowns. But what fight can you go back at and run Benway and be like, oh, there you go. He's pursuing takedowns as an actual game plan for 15 minutes. He's looking to wrestle for 15 minutes. He's not. He likes to stand in front of his opponents a little bit too long. 
So I think Adeshev is live, but again, I'm going to take the coward's way out. And I like the decision prop. I, I do. Minus 165, you already touched on it. Uh, if Adeshev wins this fight, he is a point-style kickboxer. It's one of these guys that can defeat you, but knocking you out, maybe not so much. And Ryan Benoit, he's, he's durable. Flip side to that, Benoit's got a submission game. Benoit's got a little bit of knockouts to him, but... I don't know. We just seen Adeshev go a hard three rounds against probably a better level of striker. And as far as the grappling is concerned, I mean, I don't think Adeshev's completely fish out of water. Even though he's a kickboxer, he's training out of New York. I know he's getting a lot of good rounds in. Um, I, I would say minus one sixty five is like the safe play here because otherwise it's a pass. This is a close fight. Could go either way. I do agree with the uh, the assertion that the dog is probably the value play and the way to go. Dog or pass for me, but a, a pass could definitely be a, in order as well. I'm glad that you brought up his training camp. He has spent some time over there at Nick, Nick Cadone's uh, gym, obviously getting some time in with Frank Edgar and some of those guys on that team, Timor Valiev being another one of them. So it got to help you in terms of thinking that he's going to be ready for any type of wrestling approach if that is what Benoit decides to take here. How ready? Not 100% sure, but at least he's done the preparation that he needs to. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. And we got uh, Mike Trezano going up against Ladovic Klein, the biggest favorite on the card, Ladovic Klein coming in at minus 250, plus 210 the return on Mike Trezano and this is another spot where I'm kind of leaning the dog man and it's hilarious that you said like uh, obviously the dog or pass podcast that you guys got I'm assuming that you guys have been saying dog a lot on on that podcast I didn't get to watch it this time around but I do believe that there are some many yeah. live dogs on this card and again I think Trezano is one of them now Klein obviously coming off that big beautiful uh uh head kick knockout over Mr uh Shane Young last time around and then uh Trezano obviously coming off a pretty extended layoff uh last time around we saw him get choked out by Grant Dawson but I don't think he's really gonna have to worry too much about a wrestling approach here or a jiu-jitsu approach here from Ludovic Klein and I think that should make this pretty much a, a stand-up fight I think a lot of people are expecting Klein to go out there and land a similar head kick or a knockout of some sort against Trezano but I think Trezano is quite durable and I think he has a good uh game plan to go out there and kind of outpoint uh Ludovic Klein in this fight I think it's going to mainly be a stand-up fight it's going to be a striking fight and I like the combinations a little bit more than I've been seeing from Trezano. Obviously, training with Tiger Showman, getting rounds in and time in with guys like Jimmy Rivera and, and Julio Warse and uh, Lyman Good and, and Shane Burgos. That's like the cream of the crop in terms of striking and guys that throw with heat. So I'm sure he's ready to go in terms of what's going to be coming his way from Ladovic Klein's side. I do think Klein has some good potential. I think he has some good durability. But I think we're just riding that high a little bit too quickly here, especially over a, a knockout win over a, you know, a middling guy at the... The, at that division in Shane Young. So I think we need to reel ourselves in a little bit. People are hounding me all week. You know, they, they've been banging in my DMs, being like, how the fuck could you pick Mike, Mike Trezano to win this fight? But like, let's look at it for the facts, right? Trezano, I, I believe he's talented. The only thing you can really take away from him is that he may not have the same amount of fights as LeDouble Klein, who's 17 and 2, compared to, I believe, the 8 and 1 on Trezano's record. And not to mention the layoff that Trezano is going to be coming off of. It is a little bit of a concern, which is probably why I won't ultimately go to the betting one and actually put the money on Trezano, but I do favor him ever so slightly. Do I think that he deserves to be the favorite? No, I, I think that Klein is rightfully the favorite here, but I think the line is completely out of whack, um, and I think this fight will actually go the full 15 minutes. Another one that if you want to go out there and actually, you know, snipe the uh the overs and fight goes to the decision i think you get a good line on it minus 110 for the over two and a half plus 110 for the fight goes to decision i think that's what we'll see here and even though ladovic klein throws with some heat on his punches i think trezano is quite durable that he'll be able to eat them i think his movement is good enough to stay away from the biggest ones that will potentially put him out and then i think he'll put on the the more pressure uh the more volume and the more combinations which will ultimately give him the decision victory here am i off how are you feeling about klein and trezano 
No, so so what we see every week is that some young prospect comes to the UFC, knocks out his first opponent, and then it's like, oh man, this guy is for real. But again, he's got to go through trials and tribulations. And when you're young and you don't have as much round time, like Ludovic Klein has been to decision, but with a 17-2 record, he's knocked out a lot of opponents. He's knocked out a lot of opponents in the first round. So yeah, if you can pressure this guy and take him some deeper waters, there is that unknown. Now, when you're a young fighter coming over from a, a softer regional scene, he's been fighting kind of on the Czech regional scene, a little bit on the Polish regional scene. Poland, uh, one hell of a regional scene. Is that yeah. when you look at the guys, a lot of the time, it's like they've built, how do you build a 17-2 and two record? Like you have to fight a lot of soft opposition. But when you look at his record, he he's not fighting soft opposition. He's fighting guys you probably haven't heard of, European regional scene level guys, but guys with winning records, guys that uh, you know have given a decent account of himself. Um, you know the Lucas Sajewski fight. There's a UFC veteran. You know the RB fight. There's an ACA veteran. There's he's fighting guys that are at least a little bit uh, established at that part. Coming to the UFC, everybody was talking about like, man, this guy has got legitimate skills. Watch the tape. You can see he's a very fluid fighter. He's taking on Shane Young in his debut, but Shane Young's durable, right? He got knocked out by Alexander Volkanovski, but who wouldn't? And, uh, you know, he poses to be a problem. Um, but, yeah, I mean, my girl Caitlin Young, by the way, picking up the dub-dub. Sorry, Shane yeah, Young. I uh, didn't care about that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> dude, why does Cindy Dandois make you sweat? Like, she's got no know. skill. That guillotine was it's nuts. A sweat. Every time it's a sweat. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I know. Those fucking goddamn head and arm throws, too. Um, but he goes out there, Shane Young, and he didn't just get the victory. It's Manpre. He lived up to all of his tape on the regional scene. He's extremely fluid. He's got very excellent footwork. He's in and out of the pocket, uh, you know, effortlessly. He's got a nice high kick. He attacks rangy, good shot to the body. And again, he has been to decision. So whereas grappling seems to be his deficiency, his last loss is a submission first round where he could choke. You probably do want to get this guy to the ground, force his hands, slow him down a little bit. I just don't know that Trezano is that guy. Now experience matters for something. Where you had mentioned that Trezano doesn't have the same level, like amount of experience that Ludovic Klein, like he's actually got a lot more, right? Because this is a guy that won the Ultimate Fighter. He had to live in the tough house with a with a bunch of crazy guys. Got high level training in. As you mentioned, he's training with a cast of killers over at Tiger Shulman, who is talk about a guy that's just like uh, he, he's the real deal, Duke Rufus. You know, he's a guy that's taken. Think about uh, the guys that he's turned into fantastic strikers. You talk about Jimmy Rivera, who's a top five, top ten guy of his division. Who Archie, how spectacular he is, but even Uriah Hall was at one time a Tiger Shulman guy. Like he 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 does an excellent job of producing straight up kickboxes. Those guys have a lot of finesse. Those guys, those guys have something that Trezano just doesn't quite have. He's more of a point style guy. I mean, he's tough, he's durable, he'll stay in your face, but it's more so, you know, trying to just outpoint you ever so slightly. Whereas I think Klein's gonna do speed landing the more dynamic shots, the more spectacular looking shots, and probably do the real damage. But even though he's 17 and two, it doesn't, it, it's the same thing as Zhu Rong, right? A couple of weeks ago, we look at Zhu Rong, kid's 21 years old, and he had a ton of regional show fights. But that doesn't, that doesn't step for anything when you get into the UFC, right? You got to rebuild from there. And what I see from Klein, I like, but he's still only want to know in the UFC, he's going to be fighting some better guys. They're going to expose him a little bit. Trezano, at least he's won the ultimate fighter. At least he's gone out there and fought, you know, the Luis Pena fight is what it is, but. He comes out on the other side. You see where it's 1-1 and it's a close fight. He perseveres. He comes through on the other side. Grant Dawson, tough matchup for anybody. And uh, again, he's a striker. Grant Dawson grappler. Grant Dawson has his way. This is striker versus striker. So Trezano's durable enough that he'll be able to get into some later rounds. And he might be able to expose Ludovic Klein. But as far as what I see for like the speed, the technique, and just the overall striking acumen, it seems like Klein's a little more refined, a little faster. So I think that he'll just be landing the better shots, stay to the outside, move around. Trezano might be chasing him a little bit. And, and ultimately, he point out points him. This is another spot again. I know, probably sound like a broken record, but I, I'm looking for the decision prop. 
I'm looking for the prop because Trezano, again, going back to his point style of kickboxing, he's not one for these big knockouts. He doesn't really have much of a submission game to fall back on either. So does he knock out Klein? Even if he wins, it's going to be expose this guy by tiring him out, taking him to deeper waters. But I don't think he knocks him out. Klein, meanwhile, Klein's the guy with all the first round finishes. Klein, meanwhile, Klein's the guy that goes out there and put guys away. And Trezano, as you mentioned, right, he's coming off a nearly two-year-long layoff, and he pulled out of his last fight like four months ago with an ankle injury. So... It's very hard to train with an ankle injury, right? And also, yeah. it's only four months ago. How much is it healed? How much hard sparring have you got in for this fight? As I talked about, Ludovic Klein has much better movement, both laterally, and he should be able to dance around the per perimeter and just like snipe off his shots. If Trezano's ankle is compromised and he's following, it's all going to be a recipe for disaster. But even then, I think he's you know one of these Jersey tough guys that goes out there and can take a shot. And uh, we'll, we'll, it'll be game enough to be in the fight the whole way through. So even if he pulls off the upset, it's going the distance. And if Klein has his way and gets the win, it's going to dis the distance, in my opinion. Plus 110, plus, mo plus money. Uh, again, I know it's like another decision prop, but uh, yeah, plus, plus 110. Honestly, that's where the value lies there, in my opinion. Again, you like the like the safe overs. I like the violence and the unders. So we get a little bit of a balance here. So it's all good. But I do agree with you. I do think we see this one uh, get some minutes and get some rounds. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got Phil Hawes going up against Kyle Dawkins. Talk about a fight that's probably not going to get any rounds. I think this is the one. I think that we see either Phil Hawes go out there and get that early finish or we see Phil, uh, Kyle Dawkins put on that black belt of his and uh, find that submission on uh, Phil Hawes the later that this fight goes. Now, a lot of people are going to be like, I actually had somebody hit me up, actually say, are you not concerned about the improved gas tank from Phil Hawes? And I'm like, you know who Imovov is and you know how different he is from Kyle Dawkins? Yeah, th th I'm not concerned about it at all. Like Imovov was more than willing to be uh, engaged in the clinch and didn't really know what to do to get out of those positions. And even with Phil Hawes' gas, as I thought he was in that fight, you know, uh, Imovov let him do his game. And anytime that they were at distance and uh, Phil Haas was slightly on his back foot, you saw Imovov absolutely torching him on the feet, but for some reason was more than willing to engage in the clinch anytime Phil Haas closed the distance to try to get away from those big strikes. Kaldakis, on the other hand, that guy is mean. I don't think he's going to be clinching up. And even if he does, we'll see him dig for those underhooks, maybe go for a trip, try to get Phil Haas down later in this fight, and then start going for his submissions and ground and pound. Even if he does get taken down by Phil Haas here, I believe in his offensive ability with his black belt that he's going to keep Phil Haas working and then eventually start to gas him out and either pull off his reversal or pull off a submission off of his back. The spot that I like here the most, though, is the under two and a half. That covers an early Phil Haas knockout or that eventually uh, covers that uh, Kyle Dawkins submission, which I believe is ultimately going to be what, what comes in here. So you can go Phil Haas um, to win in round one here. Uh, and that obviously pays out, uh, wow, plus 500. I kind of surprised at that line, to be honest. I thought it would be a little bit uh, uh, lower than that. But it's either Phil Hawes, round one, Dalkis, round two, plus 600, Dalkis, round three, plus 800. But even the under two and a half currently sitting around minus 150, I think that's a very good spot. Even if you want to take fight won't start round three, plus 100, I think that's a solid spot as well. But I really like Dalkis in this spot. Kind of surprised at the line movement as in terms of making it... <clears throat> closer of a pick em fight uh but i do favor Dalkis here i think he's the much better fighter all around as long as he doesn't get nuked in that first round i believe his jiu-jitsu experience his ability to know what the hell to do when he gets tied up by phil haas on like imovov and even if he gets taken down i like his offensive ability off his back and his cardio he's definitely gonna have the cardio advantage here everybody expected imovov to have the cardio advantage over haas 
he might have, but he just had no idea what the fuck to do with it. Dawkins, on the other hand, you're talking about a guy who had Brendan Allen's back for the majority of a third round, even after getting split up and beat up as much as he was in those first two rounds. So I'm I'm banking on Dawkins here, but I'm bank banking even heavier on uh, the under two and a half. So yeah, like I said, minus 150, under two and a half. Uh, specific prop for Dalkis. Dalkis by sub is obviously my my go-to. That's plus 250. Or he, if he goes out there and decides to ground and pound instead uh, because that neck isn't showing himself, plus 500 for the KO, not too bad either. Are you feeling that way? You're you're the one that's always catering closer to the overs and, and the fight goes to decision. Do you agree with my assessment of this fight? Or do you think that it goes full 15 here? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that if it was to get out of those uh, first two rounds, it's, you love those third-round finish props, third-round finish props. And I think that this one's live for a third-round finish prop for Chris Dokus, right? If Dokus is able to tire him out, I mean, take him to deeper waters, that's where he's going to look to drown him. I had Imovov straight up, plus 125 underdog. I had Imovov by knockout, plus 175. But I, I banked on that Imovov third-round finish as well. And mind you, he hurt. Um, he almost got a finish in the second round. But in that third round, I mean, you just see where Imovov's got him absolutely wobbled. Phil Haas is tired, he's gassed, and then he just resorts to pressing him up into the cage. He's too strong. Imovov can't shake it out of there. But it's just Phil Haas is not a three-round fighter. I mean, he either goes out there and charges you in the first round, or he gets fatigued. You and I have talked about it every time we've ever talked about Phil Haas. You know, you go back, you can talk about all of his losses. Uh, Lewis Taylor fight, World Series of Fighting, uh, you know, him getting head kicked on the Contender Series against Julian Marquez, him losing against Andrew Sanchez on the Ultimate Fighter once upon a time. They're all fights that he starts out well in and then just fatigues and tires. When he looks at his best, he knocks you out in the first round. If he got guys that have durability issues, he's going to be able to expose them. And you saw that in the Imovov fight. Imovov has a good chin. Imovov's young. He's wily. But one of the, even though he's from Dangstan, he lives and trains full-time out of France. He just doesn't have the bodies in the gym to press him in the wrestling department. His striking looked okay, but as far as him getting his back against off against the cage and defending takedowns, he just couldn't quite do it. I would expect Dokus to be able to go out there and at least make him work, but that's the key is make him work. If you're looking at this from the money line side of things, 100% you're looking to live bet this fight after the first round because Phil Hawes will either not come out in the first round, you won't have to worry about it, or he is going to take a beating, right? Um, he just tires, and as he tires, as he starts to fatigue, his game just completely falls apart. One thing I am worried about big time with Phil Haas is that he does have that wrestling, and I think that is a solid path of victory to go out there and just shoot takedowns, secure the fight to the ground, and hopefully hold him down. When you look at Kyle Doukas and where he's had a little bit of trouble in the past, you look at the regional show, right? That fight with Jonathan Webb, he's taken down twice in the first couple of rounds, getting out grappled a little bit by a smaller man, but eventually pulls it out, right? The Michael Lombardo fighting contender series. He gets taken down by Lombardo. The Steven Regman fight. Steven Regman's fighting up two weight classes. He gets taken down by Regman. Um, there is a path that exists in taking this guy down. Takedown defense isn't great. I think Phil Haas will be able to use that wrestling and get this fight to the ground. What is going to make it interesting is that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, like you mentioned. You got to make him work. Throwing up submissions is one thing, but getting back up to your feet and just making him work, cause him to work, will cause him to fatigue. In the second round, he should be a lot better. In the third round, he should be able to take him out. But yeah, I got Doukas. I got Doukas inside the distance. I uh, I like that under two and a half. I mean, I think that covers it on both sides. If Phil Haas is able to go out there and nuke him out in the first, then he's going to do that. If not, you're going to have Doukas grind him out, take him some deeper waters, and then hopefully get the job done. So uh, yeah, I, I just I can't get behind Phil Haas. You know how I am. I can't bank on him. As talented as he is, he's just a one-round fighter, and I need a little bit more than that. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that people are actually banging on him to go out there and, you know, do the same type of game plan that he did against Imovov. They, they're completely discrediting the 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 the, the black belt of Dalkis and his ability to be offensive off of his back. And speaking of get nuked, 
I think you're one of your one of your parlays just oh got nuked. Quintilia getting absolutely wrecked here. Yeah, and my parlay just got nuked. <laughs> Oh, brutal. That's BFL for you, man. You're, you're, you're playing some. I, I'm not gonna lie, Delia was, was one knockout, of those guys. Though. Yeah, one of those one of those Delija guys was. Uh, uh, I think he was the one that was actually scheduled to fight Cyril Gan a couple months ago, and then PFL pulled him out because they said they wanted him for his tournament. And I was actually considering making a small yeah. bet on him because I thought he'd go out there and and grind out Gan in a similar way that we've never, or in a way that we've never seen Gan actually get uh, or, or approached by by his opponents, but. Yeah, seeing him get started like that probably wasn't the greatest look either. But uh, let's keep this thing moving along. Uh, we don't have too much more time. We got Ben Rothwell going up against Phil Philippe Lins. You want to talk about a fight that has dumpster fire written all over it? This is probably it. I think you can actually go out there and assume that this fight is going to go the full 15 minutes. Both guys seem to be a little bit gun-shy, but I would trust Philippe Lins a little bit more. He seems a little bit more calculated and methodical in his approach when he is striking and looking for his openings, and I think that's what, what's going to give him the win here over uh, Ben Rothwell, who seems to be diminishing on a fight-to-fight basis. Now, I know he's 2-1 and one in his last three fights, but let's be honest, those two wins were probably not the most impressive, and then obviously last time out there getting outpaced and outworked by Marcin Taibura, who I believe is, you know, a top 10-ish, top 15-ish heavyweight. I don't want to get too much slack on Marcin Tabura, but the diminishing game of Rothwa is too concerning for me to go out there and, and back him. Now, can he go out there and possibly knock out uh, Mr. Philippe Lins? Yeah, that's possible. We saw Tanner Bozer do it last time around, and Philippe Lins is definitely a far cry coming from uh, PFL uh, the, uh, You know, a year ago, and a lot of people were very high on him, not to mention he was a minus 235 favorite going into his debut against Andrzej Lovsky, but then that style of his calm, cool, collective, methodical approach really bit him in the ass against Andrzej Lovsky because he was sitting there thinking a little bit too much, and then with um, with Arlovski, you were getting output. You were actually getting uh, something to, to actually score. So here, I think Philippe Lins, even though both guys are low output, I think Lins will have the slightly better shots, uh, look a little bit more active, land the better shots. Um, and, and yeah, I'm going to take him to, to win by decision. In terms of props here, obviously, we're looking at uh, Lins... Uh, sorry, over two and a half, minus 175. Fight goes to the decision, minus 155. Not the type of line that I really want to be backing, especially at heavyweight, but considering how these guys have been fighting and competing, it seems like a, a spot that would probably hit. And then obviously, Philippe Lins to win by decision at plus 215. I think that's a very solid spot. You're getting plus 225 on Rothwell to win by decision. So not too much uh, discrepancy there. You, heck, even if you bet both, you're coming out probably with a win. Uh, but I do like Lins on this side. I th think he goes out there, puts the better pressure on, lands the better shots, and ends up by decision how are you seeing this one yeah i think we're banking some rounds in uh, you talked about ben rothwell and like the diminishing goods on him and a little bit older since he came back from his usada suspension no doubt he just hasn't quite been the same guy that he has been in the past i mean when he was on his best little role there this guy was scary knocks out alistair over him submits josh barnett he's on a serious role in 2016 but after the junior DeSantos fight a three-year-long layoff the guy that's come back i mean he's very slow he's very lumbering I just don't think that you can confidently get behind Ben Rothwell. But when you think about Felipe Lins, it's like, what's there to like about Felipe Lins? Yeah. I mean, you talked about the low output on the Andre Arlovsky fight. It, it, it's beyond that. Here's a guy that's just never really got up to his expectations. Yes, technically, he won a World Series of Fighting Heavyweight Championship. But uh, my God, I mean, I go back to his Bellator days where he was fighting at 205 pounds, loses the fight to Kelly Nunson as a 3-1 to favorite, got knocked out by Vadim Nemkov. Um, not not looking great at 205 pounds and then he just leaves he comes back as a 230 pound heavyweight not even a particularly big guy uh and he signs with pfl he had not fought in a year he had lost his last two fights and this is his debut at as as a heavyweight 
But he gets Alex Nicholson, one and three UFC veteran, former middleweight. You know, beats him. He drives Kyle Allencar, 40-year-old man. Jared Rochal, you know, another UFC releasee. Although he was six and two in the UFC, it's just he had such a kryptonite style for viewership. Like, my God, who wants to watch that? And then Josh Copeland, a guy that was 0-2 in the UFC. Like, that's really low-level heavyweight action. And he's beating them. And he wins a World Series of fighting heavyweight title fighting that, that level. But Andre Olofsky, you know, outpoints him soundly. Just, you know, throws more volume than him of all things. And then Tanner Bozer, of all people, knocks him out. This is not good, man. He's not really a natural heavyweight. I think he's a guy that fights up from 205. He generally comes yeah. in around 230. And you got Rothwell's 260. He's, he's a big boy. He's a lot slower, but he's got decent output. If he pressures him and he gets in his face and he kind of tries to make it happen, he could potentially catch him with something and wear on him. I see fight goes the distance at minus 155. But to be honest with Felipe Linz's chin, I mean, all it's going to really take for Ben Rothwell is to do what he did in the Stefan Struve fight. Just let your hands go, man. Go out there and try to knock this guy out. Fight like you're down a point because he lost a point in the Struve fight, which is what caused him to actually let his hands go. But like, you know, come at this guy, press the action. And if he does those things, then yeah, I think Ben Rothwell can actually spring the victory. I'd like to say fight goes the distance, but it is heavyweight action. Anything could happen when you got the big guys in the ring. But I think that at this stage of Rothwell's career, he's just not, there's not enough snap on him strikes. It's more just like back you up, beat you up a little bit, bruise you up. If he can get you up against the cage, maybe he tries to get you to the ground. Maybe if it's going to be a stoppage, it's going to be a late stoppage. So maybe you go with the over two and a half instead of the fight goes the distance. But even then, honestly, the price is not very good on that. So I can see you just hitting a pass altogether. The official pick would be the other side, though. I'm going to go Ben Rothwell. All right. I don't blame you for that one. The, the, the picks are all over the place for this freaking fight, and I completely understand. That wraps up the prelim portion of this card, and we're going on to the main card. And I always want to remind you guys at this point of the stream, please do hit that like. Please do hit that subscribe. Definitely helps your boys out and lets you guys know that uh, lets us know that you guys are enjoying the show. All right. Let's get to the main card here, and you want to talk about dogs. I think we got a live one here in Angie Hill. I'm not a big Angie Hill fan historically, but I think that this is a great matchup for her going up against Amanda Hivas. In terms of odds, we currently have uh closer to a plus 155 for angela hill i personally better at plus 160 minus 175 on amanda hebas pretty straightforward right i'm not going to go out there and call amanda hebas cheney saying that she's cody garbrandt at this point in time but it does not seem like she reacts well to getting hit especially getting hit cleanly as she did against poliana vienna in the regional scene and then getting hit clean with a beautiful counter by marina rodriguez back in january and now this is one of the better strikers that she's fought since she's come into the ufc Let's be honest, all of her fights prior to the Marina Rodriguez fight, she had the benefit of dragging the fight where she had the advantage. The Mackenzie Dern fight, she was able to keep it up in a, in a standing position where she was able to look like a world beater. Apparently, everybody was so sold by her striking in that fight and not recognize that Mackenzie Dern is not a striker. And that was pre-Jason Perillo. So I was definitely seeing through that bullshit. Then she goes out there and beats Rana Marcos the way that she does. Goes out there and takes down Paige Van Zandt immediately. Again, taking the fights into her realm where she feels more comfortable than her opponent. Against Marina Rodriguez, yeah, she was successful in that first round, getting the fight to the ground. But that second round, she played a little bit too much on the feet. She ended up getting caught with the counter. And you don't play those types of game uh, games against uh, the, the person that we'll be talking about in the main event here with the Marina Rodriguez. With Angela Hill, a lot of people are going to be calling her a pillow-fisted, but you're clearly not watching her fights. And uh, although I don't blame you, but she does go out there and put a hurting on her opponents. She she dropped Claudia Godelia with a beautiful step-in elbow. She's been hurting Ashley or She's been hurting uh, Michelle Watterson. Just look at Watterson's face, even though Watterson ended up picking up the win in that fight. Um, she has power in her hands. She's stepping in to a strike. She's uh, sitting 
been down on her strikes a little bit more. And I believe if she lands a couple of those good strikes here against Amanda Kibas, we'll see the same situation that we saw in the Marina Rodriguez fight. Now, I do think Hill's takedown defense is slightly getting better. I think her get-up game is slightly getting better. And her movement, all in all, is going to cause Amanda Kibas some troubles here. If Kibas can't successfully get this fight to the ground, she is going to get exposed, people. She's going to get absolutely exposed this weekend uh, for being a, you know, an average striker, just a slightly below average striker. Don't get me wrong. I think she still has some talent, and I think that she could still, you know, crack into the top five. But once she fights somebody that can keep the fight standing, can keep it in their own realm, like Angela Hill, I believe we'll be able to. I think that we'll see Angela Hill put the beating on her. I think the most likely outcome is Angela Hill by decision by piecing her up, but I am not looking over that knockout prop which is currently sitting around plus 700 plus 800 at a couple spots you know your boy's taking a shot on that shit so I, i'm gonna go with angela hill probably by second or third round tko here uh, i'm not a big believer in the round three prop here as i think that uh you know i i think the ko is probably the better way to go if you want to look at something that i feel a little bit more confident in but even if you want to sprinkle a little bit on hill round two plus 1400 hill round three and plus 1800 it's not too bad i don't think the finish happens in the first round um, and what would make me even more confident is if Amanda Kibas gets down Angela Hill and that first round and is not able to submit her, I think it's only going to get harder for her to track down Angela Hill the longer this fight goes, and I think she's going to get absolutely pieced up. So I'll go Hill. My favorite prop, like I said, is the uh, KO prop at plus 700. Am I am I ragging on uh, the, the the simp or the people that people keep simping for here for Amanda Kibas, or do you like Angela Hill here as well? Dude, I'll take what your word for it, man. You're the uh, Amanda Hebus whisper, picking that Marina Rodriguez second second round TKO prop, literally to the T, pays like 12 to 1, and then she goes out there and delivers. And just like we talked about, it's like, well, Marina Rodriguez has got suspect takedown defense. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's why I took the second round. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> all right, goes out there, Hebus takes her down, Hebus controls her, and then second round starts. It's like she gets clipped and she puts her away. So we'll talk about Rodriguez in a bit and the power that she brings to the table, but you snuff that one out. Hebus is a lifetime striker. I mean, her father was a striker, her grandfather was a striker. Like, this is her background. This is her pedigree, but she is a little bit chinny. I mean, Pollyanna Vienna knocked her out in jungle fights. That's her only career loss. And then you saw in her last fights, her second career loss, but again, knocked out by Marina Rodriguez. So these strong, hard-hitting uh, Brazilian fighters have been able to crack the code. You're seeing her use her grappling a lot more now. The Paige Van Zandt fight. I mean, the Marina Rodriguez fight for the first round. Even the Mackenzie Dern fight where she was very comfortable sitting in Dern's guard, which is crazy to me. You know, her grappling is obviously very good, but she's looking to use that a lot more. So with Angela Hill, I mean, it's so easy to say, well, her takedown defense is no good. The, the book has been written and we've read it many times. You see it time and time again, but it's the improvements you see out of Angela Hill. She never turned pro in MMA until she was like 30 years old. Fought in the ultimate fighter as a 1-0 fighter was ranked 16th seed and was made to fight Carlos Sparza, the number one seed in the very first fight in the house. Like, you know, didn't take the easy way out, but it's the progression. It's the fighting five times a year and the learning on the job and get the getting the experience. And one of the biggest assets is the takedown defense. And you see the Carlos Sparza fight. You see the, the Claudia Gadelia fight. Michelle Watterson, this is a, a huge one for me, one of 18 on takedowns against Angela Hill. You know, same thing with Claudia Goodell. It takes it down in the first round, but now you're making your work. And now the takedowns aren't coming as easy. Hill makes you work. And then Hill gets Ashley Yoder her last time out. And I, I, I'm on Hill. I think most people are on Hill. You're, you're on Hill. But there's a narrative going around from people that are like, Yoder's going to win this fight. The first fight was close. Yoder's nice. a <laughs> Were you on Yoder? I, I took a very I, I, small shot at her because I didn't agree one. with the odds. 
Yeah, you're not the only one. But the narrative made sense. It was like, well, wrestling defense, takedown defense is Angela Hill's issue, right? Yotter's got the grind. She's coming out of Dan Henderson's camp. They fought once before. Yotter took her down three times, I believe, in that fight. It's like th these odds, why not have that shot on Yotter? But what you saw in the fight is that like Hill's a much different fighter than she was the first time around because she's made those, those improvements to the takedown defense range. Now, I'm super impressed that she's out there fighting five hard rounds with Michelle Watterson. She's fighting a former world title challenger in Claudia Gadelia. But I'm also more imp uh, impressed that she'll just fight anyone. You offer Loma Lukabume, I'll take it. You offer Arianne Karanolosi, I'll take it. You have a name? You don't have a name? You're tough? You're perceived tough? I'll take it. She just fights everybody. And that's what's allowed her to develop and learn. And I think the difference between her and Hebus is she's got more fights in the UFC than Hebus does in her professional career. You know, she's fought a who's who. She didn't get the Paige Van Zant fights. She's taken the hard road. And I think that her takedown defense is much improved. So even if she does get taken down in the first round, understandable. You saw Claudia do it. You see people do it early. It's that she makes you work. And the same way Hebus got Marina down early, okay. But after that, it's it's that it's that make her work and hit her and hurt her. And I want the Angela Hill by decision prop because she's more of a decision fighter. But you're not necessarily wrong. You look at Hebus been knocked out in both of her pro losses. Maybe she doesn't like getting hit. Maybe she is a tad bit chinny. The thing I'm scratching my head on with uh, with Angela Hill is like the last time she knocked out an opponent uh, is, is Hannah Cyphers. Grind and pounds Hannah Cyphers. So shit, it's Hannah Cyphers. She did stop Carnalosi on a cut into the third round, not a real knockout. And then prior to that, the knockout, the only knockout she has goes all the way back to 2016 in Invicta against Stephanie Egging. She's not really a first round finisher. She's more of a build up on you and take you out late. And so could she be one of these third round prop finishes? Yes. But I also think she probably just wins another one of these decision type victories. I agree with the assessment hundred percent. It's a live underdog spot. I think Angela Hill's a live underdog. Not a hundred percent sure on that method of victory, but the one that I'd be playing for this one specifically would be um, fight goes the distance and more, more, more prone than that. Angela Hill by, by decision. All right. I'm glad that you're on the same side with the underdog here. Hopefully it comes through. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Diego Ferreira or Carlos Diego Ferreira going up against Gregor Gillespie. Obviously, Gillespie was supposed to go out there and fight Mr. Brad Riddell a couple months ago. Uh, I believe there was a COVID situation that occurred that pulled out one of the guys. And uh, now they're matched up against different opponents. I think Brad Riddell next week is fighting Drew Dober. And now this weekend, we got uh, CDF going up against Gregor Gillespie. Now, this fight... I feel slightly more at risk if I'm backing Gregor Gillespie, right? In the Brad Riddell fight, you have Brad Riddell, who's pretty much a striker, and obviously Gregor Gillespie's go-to is the wrestling. And once he's able to implement the wrestling, get the fight to the ground, he wouldn't have too much to worry about. With Fajera, on the other hand, you got to have pretty decorated black belt in jiu-jitsu who could possibly make it really tough for Gregor to truly get his game going from on top with that wrestling. But I will say this. I do think that Gregor Gillespie is probably the one of the best, if not the best, uh, jujitsu player that we've come that's come from a wrestling background to his degree. Like he does a really good job in terms of flowing on top of his opponents, uh, obviously going for chokes and and getting the backs of his opponents and and passing guard and all that type of stuff. I think he's pretty good from there, which is why I'm kind of comfortable in him uh, being able to stay out of the submission attempts of Carlos Diego Ferreira. I think he'll be able to nullify that, and I think he'll be able to just pretty much smother from smother from him on on top, land some good strikes him on top and just pretty much control the majority of the fight. Now, Gregor is a, is a finisher, right? Some people want to say he's a lay-in prayer, but I believe he has more finishes on his record than he does decisions. And with that said, I think this fight actually might play out to a decision here. I think he's going to struggle to finish CDF, who will have his black belt to kind of lean on and keep him out of bad positions. But I do think that we'll see Gregor go out there and uh, 
pretty much stay on top of him. I, I did Dan Levy's show half the battle this morning, and the term that he used was impregnate uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira by just staying on top of him for 15 minutes. And I exactly expect that to happen this weekend uh, with Gregor. Uh, another part of Gregor's game that I've been impressed with, uh, even though he got his head knocked into the seventh row by Kevin Lee last time, his jab looked pretty fucking good. Like his striking is slowly coming together, and we don't really get to see too much of it because he's able to ground his opponents relatively quickly. But I was impressed with what we saw on the feed from him in that Kevin Lee fight up until the point that he got knocked out uh knocked out as bad as he did now he has that huge layoff right last time we saw him we see 244 the same night as the bmf title which seems like an eternity but i still do believe that he has the chops to go out there as a, i believe he's 34 years old he still has you know he's close enough to his prime to give us his high level um uh, performances, and I think that this is his second toughest fight, if not toughest fight, uh, from that Kevin uh, in comparison to that Kevin Lee fight. So I I'll go with Gregor. I'll go with him to win by decision here. But I will say that I do think that uh, Carlos is live. I wouldn't be mad if you come out here and be like, "This is a dog or pass situation." But uh, I do like Gregor by decision, and we're getting plus one forty-five for that. I do think he controls him, stays out of the submissions, and the longer this fight goes. I think the less of a threat from Fajera that we'll see because we obviously saw in the Darius fight. Darius was chain wrestling very well. Who chain wrestles better than him? Mr. Gregor motherfucking Gillespie. So I'm thinking that we'll, we'll, he'll get the fight to the ground with relative ease. And the longer that it goes, we saw the output. We saw the dangerous tactics of Fajera really start to dwindle in his fight against Darius. And I think we'll see the same thing here uh, with uh, Gregor Gillespie. So I like Gregor. Gregor by decision, like I said, plus 145. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, so it's funny. So prior to Benil Darius versus Carlos Jager Ferrer, you were on Carlos Jager Ferrer. I Benil Darius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were all, dude. We were on him big man, and I'm all over him on the on the basis of he's a much better wrestler, Benil Darius. He's going to complete these takedowns. He's going to stay out of harm's way. He's going to control this fight for the most part on top. That's what's going to be the difference maker. His striking is very good. It'd be good enough to keep it close standing, but those takedowns is what's going to win this fight. Goes out there, gets those takedowns, perfect. Now in this spot. It's, just, it's the same situation, only I'm going the other way. I'm going Carlos Diego Ferreira. The difference between Benil Darius and Gregor Gillespie, Gregor Gillespie, much better wrestler, Benil Darius, much better grappler. Um, I know that Gillespie's obviously been working on his grappling a lot, but there's no doubt that he wrestled into his 30s. You know, he spent a lot of time wrestling, whereas Benil Darius, like, dropped out of college, university, and just pursued jiu-jitsu, won a, a BJJ purple belt. Uh, he was a world champion as a purple belt, gets awarded as black belt. And as far as his grappling goes, I mean, it, it's very, very high level. He's obviously spent a lot of time working on his striking, adding these different elements to his game, but his grappling is his bread and butter. Him being on top position over Carlos Diego Ferreira, I think he'd be okay. Because Carlos Diego Ferreira is a third-degree Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. You don't want to play in the guard with this guy. But Benil is one of the very few guys that can play in your guard. And when you look at that fight, my God, he is throwing up some hot, hot heat for Benil. Benil is able to stay out of harm's way. Is Gillespie that good of a grappler or is he a great wrestler? Because we all know about it. He's the second best guy in the world next to Jordan Burroughs. You know, has a, has a fantastic collegiate career. He's multi -time, multiple time All-American. Would have won national titles. Would have been on the Olympic squad if not for Jordan Burroughs. But his wrestling second to none. What gets me is that he just spent so much time fighting low-level opponents that I don't really know where his where his arc is, where his potential, where his growth could have been. You see him come in the UFC against Glyco Fraca. He takes the fight in Brazil, relatively short notice, even money against an ultimate fighter winner. That That's that's solid stuff, man. Talk about a big jump up. It's everything after that. You know, it's fighting Andrew Holbrook his next time out as like a nine to one favorite. Then he fights Jason Gonzalez. Then he fights Vince Pichel. Then Yancey Medeiros, but Yancey Medeiros is six foot tall striking Hawaiian. Like what kind of fight is this? You know, he beats those guys. He looks great against those guys. And like you said, his grappling looks good. He's floating. 
it's a, like it's a lower level. Carlos Diego Ferreira is not that level. Like, you're not going to float on this guy, surely. So even if he don't, goes and gets the takedowns, and I assure you, he probably will score takedowns, Carlos Diego Ferreira either threatens with the submissions or is able to just explode and get back up. It's when he gets back up. CDF loves to throw, man. I mean, the guy just lets his hands go, almost reckless abandon at times. But since moving to Fortis MMA, they've got his hands a lot tighter. He does throw big power. You've seen him outstrike Maribach Tesumov. Like, that's not exactly something that's an easy task to do. I think that he's going to make him work. He's going to make Gillespie work. When Gillespie was getting hit by Kevin Lee, he wasn't reacting properly to it. You know, like he'd get hit and he'd shell up a little bit. Even though he was landing the jab, when they'd go punch for punch, you could just tell he didn't like it. And to that effect, he only landed nine strikes. He landed nine significant strikes. He got outstruck 21 to nine. Um, there was no huge ground and pound at the end. It was just the head kick folds him over, right? So as far as I'm concerned, it's like what you saw in the Kevin Lee fight was for the first time he's fighting a guy that can match his wrestling. For the first time, he's matching a guy that now that he can keep it standing a little bit, can strike. And now that he's getting hit for the first time. He didn't love it. You know, he didn't like it. He's 34 years old now. He spends a lot of his time fishing. Like, I just, I don't know how committed he is at being the number one guy in the world. As much as he might be committed to being a good competitor and a good athlete, someone who goes out there and gets a win. I don't know that when it gets real deep and grindy, if he's going to be willing to come out on the other side. So, He's been off almost two years since uh, since the Kevin Lee fight. You know, it's a bad knockout, but he's probably cleared the cobwebs. I just think that Carlos Diagrafero, for this price tag, is a live underdog. He's going to be looking to throw up submissions. He's going to be looking to get the knockout. He's going to be looking to finish this thing inside the distance. I don't have a specific prop. If I was going to take Carlos Diagrafero, I would just take up the straight-up money line. It's plus money anyways. If I was going to look for a prop on how his method of victory is, I got a feeling that he does finish this thing inside the distance if he wins it. But outside of that, you know, Gillespie, you know, if he's going to impregnate somebody, he just, it's that blanket approach. And he's one of these guys that similar to uh, Marab Dabajvili, like if you get back up, he just take you back down. You know, he yeah. just score 12, 13 takedowns in the course of a fight and just stick on you. I'm just, I'm really hoping that Carlos Diego Ferreira's minds his piece and cues has a great game plan uh, put together and is able to sting this guy, cause him to shoot a reactionary takedown, not on his own will, and then hopefully lock up a submission. So I'm going to go with another underdog here play. I don't, I don't, I don't blame you at all. Like I said, it, it is a much riskier play than him against uh, Brad Riddell. And obviously, this is a much different level of competition than, like you said, Yancey Medeiros, Jason Gonzalez, and those other guys that he was whooping on before. All right, let's move on to this next play that we got here is Mario uh, Screen against Marcos Hajerio de Lima. I call this dumpster fire number two. We got minus one ninety on Hajerio de Lima, plus one sixty five on Marie Screen. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Either you're going to get Delima in round one plus 150, uh, or you're going to get uh, Maurice Green round two uh, plus 1000, Maurice Green round three plus 1400. Uh, Delima, big shots in his uh, or big power in his hands and kicks. Obviously, is able to really torch the legs of his opponents if he wants to go with those calf kicks or those leg kicks. And I think that's going to be very important for him here to do that against Green, who's obviously going to be a much taller opponent. And then I think eventually he'll be able to open up with his punches, land some big shots on the feet, and then eventually ground uh, Maurice Green and eventually. She, uh, maybe ground and pound him out. If this was MMA lock of the night of 2020, I'd be looking to lock up the under two and a half or under one and a half in this spot, but I am not trusting middling and low level heavyweights anymore. And I'm staying far the fuck away from this fight. I do like the Lima by finish. I do like him to win in round one, but not with much conviction. I'm staying away from this fight. Just I'm staying away from the Philippe Lins fight, but people want props. People want finishes fight. Won't start round two minus 150. Not too bad. Fight won't start round three. 
minus 210, not too bad. Uh, under 2.5, minus 260, again, not too bad. I'd be surprised if we see this fight hit the judges' scorecards, but I'm going to be leading with Hadrio de Lima, and I think he gets it done in the first round. How about you? Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Delima by TKO plus 120. I think he probably does get a jo the job done in the first round. But if he doesn't, here's a great live betting opportunity because both those guys, they got bad cardio. I feel like Delima is going to topple over on top of him in the first round. He does got okay offensive wrestling and that he's a big lumbering guy, but he's usually able to push guys up against the cage and maybe peel them off with a with a with a single leg takedown. Maurice Green being six foot seven, he doesn't deal particularly well off the cage. And uh, again, he's prone to the single leg takedowns. When he does get taken down, he doesn't got much of a guard. Yes, he does have those long limbs, but especially if you can get him in like a half guard position, he's just not able to scramble up and get back up. But with Delima, it's like even the Stefan Struve fight. Fight starts, he drops Struve <laughs> 10 seconds into the fight. So and then he gets, he, he just sits in his guard, dude. No, no strike. Literally just fucking sits in his guard. The fat shit just sits there, gasses out doing, doing nothing. And then in the second round, Struve actually won the fight in the second round by submission. He landed zero strikes. It's one of those, I want to fight without landing a single punch. Just on the basis of Delima gasses out completely. He used to fight at 205. Now he clocks in at like 260. He's a big boy. He got a belly on him. Um, but like, there's no denying that he is a heavy set guy that does like to plant his feet and throw heavies. He is technically a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, even though he should have happened to been forced to give it back after he got forearm choked by Alexander Romanov. Horrible. Who's getting forearm choked? Who's a black belt? Like, just doesn't make any sense. So, what I'm saying is, jujitsu is not great. The striking is not great, but it's all power. It's all power, power, power. That power should be enough to take out Green inside of the first, maybe under one and a half. But if Green survives it, yeah. If, if for whatever reason Delima can't get this fight to the ground in the second round, Green's just going to stay to the outside and just chip away with kicks and a jab, kicks and a jab, kicks and a jab. He could slowly pull ahead of this one. And then uh, with Delima, it's like he, no durability. He'll just topple right over. So it's a live underdog spot, but I've picked enough underdogs in this card. I'm not going to force this one. I think I'm going to go with Delima. Delima by TKO plus 120. I'm looking at it from a live betting standpoint because if Green can survive, it's going to be a huge price tag, right? Like you'll get a big plus money price tag after he drops that first round. But yeah, with Delima, I just, I've never been a big fan of his work. He's very untrustworthy. Can't confidently get behind him but again like you said people want to pick people want to prop the prop that i would feel best about i guess would be that plus 120 lima inside the distance or sorry by tko yeah i'm right there with you this is a dumpster fire waiting to happen and i absolutely agree all right we got three fights left to go let's ring through this shit we got neil magny going up against jeff neil hopefully we don't confuse you guys too much while we're breaking down this fight uh but i think this is another live dog spot i like me some neil magny and that weird unorthodox style that he brings to his fights you know i mean it's similar to to um to Wonderboy Thompson in the fight in this aspect that like he he doesn't fight like Wonderboy is what I mean but like they, they just have this game plan and this style that goes out there and frustrates their opponents and that's what Neil Magny is known for right he sticks that jab out there he stays in front of your face he doesn't let you breathe he doesn't let anything go uh and, and he's able to, to to break you more often than not his cardio is unrelenting which is why he's always able to stay in his opponent's face and kind of push them to the brink and luckily for us you know after he went out there and lost to Michael Chiesa the way that he did and I almost swore off never betting Neil Magny again, uh, 
they give us a, a stylistically favorable opponent here for Neil Magny. Now, I love Jeff Neal. I think the guy is very talented, and it's very unfortunate what he had to go through health-wise before that one-away Thompson fight, but it was good to see him back in the cage. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to get his hand raised. That's got to get you thinking how much did it truly affect his performance and how much is it going to affect him in the future. But in terms of stylistically, he needs a space to operate. He needs space to, to get his combinations off and get those beautiful head kicks off and, and, and just get his strikes off. And I don't think Neil Magny is going to give him that. I think Neil Magny, with his reach and his size, he's going to be able to stay on the outside, jab him to death, and then eventually uh, close in, clinch him up against the cage. And even though uh, Jeff Neal has about 92% takedown defense, I think even if Magny doesn't get the takedown, he should be successful in those clinch positions. Then tell me how many times you remember seeing Neil Magny with a heavy wizard on one side and then just pounding the guy's face with his other hand up against the cage because he just doesn't let his opponents breathe. And I think that's going to be the exact same thing here with uh, in this fight. I think he's a very live underdog, and I think he is quite durable. He has two knockout losses uh, in the UFC, if I'm not mistaken, and one of those two Santiago Ponzinibbio where he pretty much got his legs chewed up for three and a half rounds and then finish, uh, eventually finished by punches in the fourth and then by Lorenz Larkin who didn't take as long chewed his legs up for three and a half minutes and then finished him in the fourth minute of that first round uh but it was all based around leg kicks now if we see Jeff Neal go out there and start throwing leg kicks in the first minute I'm going to be a little bit uh iffy and I'm going to be sweating my ticket out but that's not notoriously Jeff Neal's game right Jeff Neal is a solid all-around striker but he doesn't really target the legs the same way that Santiago and Lorenz Larkin normally do so save Sayud, I do trust him to go out there and implement that type of game plan for a guy like Jeff Neal, especially when you see such a big red flag for Neil Magny. But until we see it in the cage, I'm not 100% going to go out there and be like, this is what I'm banking on to see. So I do like Neil Magny. I think we see him go out there and put on another vet lesson, similar to what Angela Hill is going to be doing on earlier in the card. And I think that we see Neil Magny pull off a decision victory here, right? I think no matter who wins, this fight's going to go to a decision. So you can start banking those overs, over 1.5, minus 260, over 2.5, minus 155. Fight goes decision, minus two, 125. And then obviously Neil Magny to win by decision. Uh, I got him at plus 265. So... I love Magny here. You on the dog here, or you uh, you like some Jeff Neal? Yeah, so I agree. I think Neil Magny is a live underdog. I think Magny plus two sixty five by decision is a is a nice looking play, and I think that uh, yeah, the fight goes the distance. It'd be the official play here at minus one twenty five. It's still a pretty good price tag. Both guys did not look good in their last respective appearances. Headlining fights, five rounds. You got Neil Magny gets completely grounded for five and shut out five zip against uh, Michael Chiesa, and then you got Jeff Neal. He just he just chased Wonderboy for five rounds and. Again, loss. It's Jeff Neal was super hesitant in that fight. Didn't let his hands go. Mind you, this is a guy that knocks out everybody to that point. Jeff Neal yeah. is a dangerous man. He's got big hands, but there's one repetitive theme with all of his opponents. They're like they're not hard to find. They come at right at you. Uh, Nico Price is looking to engage in brawl. Mike Perry's looking to engage in brawl. Blaw Muhammad's looking to engage in technically. Tech, it's a more of a technical brawl, but again, these guys are stay in your face, come at you type opponents. And Jeff Neal against those type of guys catches them and knocks them out for sure. But against Wonder Boy, Wonder Boy fights a good strategic game plan. Use the perimeter, stay to the outside, use your footwork, use your speed, stay and they just matador him and land. And then as soon as Jeff Neal would come up and wind up on his shots, Wonder Boy's gone. Neal all of a sudden starts getting hesitant and doesn't let his hands go. And it was the strangest thing. It's five round fight. He's live to get a knock at any point with the kind of hands that he's got. I mean, hands of steel, Neil, for a reason. Yep. You got safe side, you force MMA, everyone's behind you. And it's like midway through the third round. And there's like an acknowledgement of like, yeah, I, I lost this fight. It's just like, man, swing on him. Go do something. But he's like smiling in there a little bit. You know, he's like, he's like, he looked at the end of every round, the buzzer would ring and he'd like put his head down in like disappointment. Like he knew the moment was passing by in front of him. 
he just wasn't able to make any adjustments. The fifth round is his best round. He knows he's down four. He lets his hands go a little bit prior uh, in that, but he landed 21 significant strikes through the first three rounds. That's all worrisome to me. I think Neil Magny is going to be able to do, to a much lesser extent, play Matador, stay to the outside. He's six foot three with an 80 inch reach, but he likes to move laterally on the outside. Allow Jeff Neal to come towards you, beat him to the punch with the jab, hopefully. When he winds up on those punches, you've got to get out of the way. But you just allow him to chase you and pursue you and then play counter puncher. And if Neil Meg can mix in a few takedowns, by God, that would be the path, right? Land the strikes long enough to get this guy up against the cage. Can you outstrike or can you out grapple Michael Chiesa? No, very clearly not. He's far too strong for you, way too good with his top control, and his wrestling's a lot better. Could you out grapple Jeff Neal? Theoretically, yes. Neil does show good takedown defense numbers in the UFC, but again, much level, much lesser level of competition. So I think Neil's just, he, he's live underdog. If he does lose this fight, I think he's going to survive. This thing's making it 15 minutes. And so for minus 125 fight goes the distance, that's a safe play. As far as an underdog play, Neil Manning is another one of these live dogs on the card. As far as chasing a big, better than plus two to one play, yeah, man, you're right. Neil Manning by decision, plus 260 about. Um, certainly has the feeling of a, of a winnable plus money ticket. I love when we agree on some solid underdogs. Glad that we're both on the same side for Hella Magni, as I do need them to close out a pretty big parlay ticket that I'll share with you after the fact. But God damn, I hope they hit. All right, speaking of hitting, Pacheco just went out there and absolutely blistered this chick and cashed my own on-track play. I believe I showed it to you earlier where I had, uh, who is it, Goldsov and uh, the under two and a half. Ooh, money. Feels so good. Feels so good. All right, let's move, on to, <laughs> let's move on to the co-main event here. We got Donald Cowboy Cerrone taking on short notice. Alex Marone and Cowboy Cerrone was supposed to go out there and fight Diego Sanchez. We obviously know what the hell is going on with that. We don't need to talk too much about it. But uh, Cerrone in a training camp. Alex Marone not in a training camp. Uh, but he is taking along with his 47MA buddies here with Jeff Neal and obviously Diego Ferreira making the trip up to, to Vegas. He's like, why not? Let's let's take this fucking fight. Let's see if I can, you know, right my wrong in my last fight where I lost to Anthony Pettis. Let's see if I can go out there and probably take out another UFC WEC legend here in Cowboy Cerrone. Unfortunately for him, stylistically, this is a horrible matchup. I think that if he isn't able to rush Cowboy early, get him out of there within the first couple minutes, I think he's going to struggle with the, the striking uh, advantage that Cowboy will have here. Obviously, the grappling advantage, even though Morono is a black belt, we just don't see him use it that effectively. And even though we don't need a a black belt to let you guys know how good Cowboy Cerrone is with his jiu-jitsu, the guy has 17 out of his 36 wins by submission. The guy is definitely very crafty on the ground, and I wouldn't be surprised if he goes out there and club and subs Alex Morono. But I do think Morono is quite durable outside of that Chaos Williams quick knockout. I do think that Cowboy wins this fight pretty much everywhere. I was surprised at the line opening up at minus 150, getting back down to minus 130, and then all the way back up to minus 200, which is where I think it truly should be. But I do think the, the the spot that I'm looking at the most here is Cowboy to win by uh, by decision. I think he goes out there and puts on a perfect performance here against Morono. I don't think he's going to be in much trouble at all. And Cowboy by decision at plus 145 is not too shabby. Do you feel the same way? How are you feeling about Morono in this spot as a short notice replacement? Yeah, it's going to be tough for Morono coming in short notice because one of his best weapons is that he's able to kind of push of a pace on guys. He's not exactly the most technical striker going, but he'll stay in your face. He'll be aggressive. He'll come forward. He'll let his hands go. It's that you got to rely on being able to do that for 15 minutes because once you get tired and that output starts to wean, you're going to be a hittable target. I did pick him against Anthony Pettis by virtue of I pick everybody against Anthony Pettis, but it was more so just like Pettis is at the end of the road. Morono, this is a huge opportunity for him. Anthony Pettis has fought all the best guys in the world. And he's won a world title. 
Meanwhile, Morono has fought in some lower level competition guys. The times that he has stepped up, he's generally come on the, the losing end of it. And now you're taking on Anthony Pettis. This is your Super Bowl. This is a huge moment for you. You got to get up for this fight. He's live in this spot. And in the first round, Alex Morono wins the first round against Anthony Pettis. Does a good job for himself. Dude, then he got really tired, man. He got zapped after the first round. In the second round, he just doesn't do anything. There's no output. There's no gamesmanship. There's nothing. He just allows Anthony Pettis to lead the dance, land the better strikes, and win the second round. Now we got a 1-1 going into the third. He's sitting on a stool. His corner's urging him, man, you need to get this fight to the ground or just do a little bit more. One more round. One more round. One, one, one more round. You can just tell from the body language, like he's exhausted. You know, his muscles are tired. He, he himself is very tired. He goes out in the third. He shoots a sloppy takedown, gets reversed. Pettis ends up on top. And then Pettis cruises out the majority of that third round on top. Almost knocks him out near the end of it. But to me, it was like his cardio let him down. This is the biggest spot of your career, the biggest fight of your life. You, you won the first round, and it's like it couldn't quite tie it together. So the idea of him now coming in on short notice there's nothing good. Don't think it's going to be good because how is he going to be Donald Cerrone? It's like he's going to have to chin check him. He's going to have to break him. He's going to have to go some hard rounds. And I don't know that coming in on short notice, he's going to be in the best shape to go out there and do that. So where does Donald Cerrone have the advantage? Donald Cerrone is a better striker, right? He's a more crisp, uh, technical guy. He's got the combinations. He's got the light kicks. As far as the striking elements of the game goes, Donald Cerrone is a better strike is a better striker than Alex Morono. As far as the wrestling goes. He's a much better wrestler than Alex Morono. Donald Cerrone, yes, he comes from a kickboxing base, Muay Thai base. He spent the last decade over at Greg Jackson's in the BMF ranch, just working specifically wrestle, 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 wrestle. And to, to when he takes on guys like the Pat Cotes of the world, or the Rick Stories of the world, or the Mike Perry's of the world, or the Cowboy Oliveras of the world, he styles on these guys. He can grapple very well. He can wrestle very well. It's when he's taking on real wrestlers, you know, when he's taking on guys like Gaethje and Ferguson and you know Masvidal, like. Those guys are a little more difficult to take down. But, I mean, I, I think Donald Cerrone's got some decent wrestling chops. And as far as the grappling goes, they're both black belts. But, again, I guess slight advantage to Donald Cerrone. He's got the biggest submission victories. He's got the better grappling. And you look at him, he just competed on submission underground and submitted uh, Rafael Dos Anjos yeah. with an armbar in overtime. It was a double tap, actually. But it's like, good God. Donald Cerrone has legitimate skills everywhere. Is he a little bit chinny? Maybe at this stage. 38 years old, is Cowboy the Cowboy he used to be? No. But is Alex Morono the guy that goes out there and knocks him out? Like, I don't think so. Is Alex Morono going to submit him? No, I really don't think so. Is Alex Morono going to take him down one single time? No, I really don't think so. So it should be Cerrone dictating where this fight takes place. Now, I think Morono is durable enough to survive the three rounds. And for that reason, I'm looking at, again, at another decision prop. This fight goes the distance is minus 175, but the Donald Cerrone by decision is plus 145. And again, I think that Cerrone can have his way in striking or the grappling but I don't know that a finish necessarily materializes. You saw Morono go hard enough three rounds versus Pettis' last time out. He is on short notice here. If he's tired after two rounds against Cerrone, it's going to be a really bad spot to be in. But I got a feeling that Cerrone will just piece him off at range and uh, eventually score himself a decision victory. But the play is going to be Donald Cerrone. I feel like uh, Alex Morono has a little bit of that honey yaya on him where he just throws the absolute heat on the feet because he trusts his black belt a little bit too much, and he shouldn't, considering what we know about him off of his back. Yeah, and you know what? Remember the Max Griffin fight where it's like Max yeah. Griffin's like very handedly taking him down and now grappling yep. him in the third round? It's like, this is not this is not good news, taking on someone like Cerrone. And 
One thing about Cowboy is that he does have high ring IQ. Now, people will be like, dude, you look like shit against Conor McGregor. It's like, oh, fuck off, man. I'll give him a pass. Yeah. It's like, he got smoked by Gaethje. He got smoked by, when was the last time he won a fight? Two years ago, not that long ago, but it was the Ally Quinta fight. And boy, oh boy, did he look good. You give him those top 15 guys, those, those fringe top 10 guys, he eats them up. You yeah. give him the best guys in the world, you know, he's he's 38 and he's got 50 pro fights under his belt. He's a little long in the tooth, right? Um, but I think that this is a spot he should be able to go out there and, and shine, put on a good performance against Morona. Perfect. All right. That sets us up for our main event. And as I do always want to remind you guys, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe. And tomorrow, Ultimate Weigh-In Show, as you guys know, rot rotating cast. And tomorrow's uh, cast, we have my guy Newsome MMA from MMA Play 365. He's the one that I team up to do the tape index with. I have my guy Notorious Picks coming on as well. And then lastly, I have AJ Sholo. You guys know him from MMA Oddsbreaker as well as Daily Fan MMA working over there with Brett Apley. I believe he does their Bellator content. But obviously very much invested in the UFC world. So make sure you guys join us tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. The Ultimate Weigh-In Show, giving you guys our last uh, thoughts and final thoughts on the fights now that we have the wins that are taking place tomorrow afternoon at 12 uh, or noon Eastern time, which I also will be doing a live stream for just watching and showing what you guys talking shit watch as we watch Half Naked Men hop on the scale and talk about them. All right, let's get to our main event here. We got the short notice main event. Like we said, we were originally supposed to get TJ Dillashaw versus Corey Sandhagen. We are getting now... Marina Rodriguez versus Michelle Watterson up at 125 pounds. And a couple of interesting things to note about the weight. Originally, they're 115ers. So that's first and foremost off the bat. Not to mention, Michelle Watterson used to be the 105-pound champion over there in Invicta. So essentially, she's coming up to a weight class this year, even though she's been getting comfortable at 115 pounds in the UFC. I do like... Michelle Watterson in this spot, though. I do think that she's a very uh, another very live dog on this card. A lot of people, for some reason, and you know me, I'm the biggest Marina Rodriguez believer out there, especially taking her against Amanda Kibas last time around. But I think that we're getting a much more better, uh, much better striker in, uh, in uh, Michelle Watterson here. I think her striking is serviceable enough to keep this fight, uh, you know, relatively competitive on the feet as long as she stays away from the death touch of Marina Rodriguez. But I think she can stay on the feet long enough and competitive enough on the feet until she's able to mix in her takedowns because her wrestling game is super underrated. A lot of people don't take it to her seriously, but she's landed at least one takedown in eight out of her 10 UFC appearances. And I'd be shocked if Jackson Wink doesn't put together a game plan that's centered around wrestling here. And that's definitely her path to victory. Marina Rodriguez just does not know how to get back to her feet. She does very, she has very poor takedown defense as we already know. And again, now you're giving me a striker uh, or, or, you know, I guess uh, Watterson is primarily a striker, but she does have an underrated wrestling game. Like I'm saying, uh, I believe eight out of her 18 wins have come via submission as well. So that's something to take into note because she is a pretty good jujitsu player, in my opinion. And I think she's the best or uh, second best jujitsu player that we've seen Marina Rodriguez actually fight up until this point. Outside of Amanda Kibas, right? I'll, I'll say outside of Amanda Kibas. Um, uh, I believe Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Calvillo is the best jiu-jitsu player that she's fought. Uh, and then second would be uh, Michelle Watterson. I'd say third is Carla Esparza, even though Carla Esparza probably one of the better wrestlers in that division, which is why she was successful in getting Rodriguez to the ground. But her jiu-jitsu, you know, I, I give the slight edge to Michelle Watterson in that spot. So I, I expect Watterson to evade the big shots and then start getting this fight to the ground, start grinding on uh, Mich uh, Marina Rodriguez. And we've known that Rodriguez has some 
durability or not durability but cardio issues in the past like it seems to fall off that's where she starts to get grounded out is the second and third rounds where these opponents are able to get the takedowns with relative ease and just absolutely make it one-sided now you're giving me an extra 10 minutes to potentially knock up a submission here against uh rodriguez yeah i'm taking watterson in the spot and i think she'll snatch up that submission in the third or fourth round i do think that uh, like i said competitive on the feet enough that she won't get knocked out she's been knocked out once in her mma career 12 years ago and she's accrued enough experience now to go up against a woman like marina rodriguez who i say is a poor woman's version of yuani and jacek and we know that michelle watterson went a full 25 minutes with her without really being in any serious trouble yeah she got beat you know pretty decisively but she didn't she wasn't really hurt to the point that she was going to get finished uh at any point in that fight uh the last thing i'll say about this fight i do think that michelle waterson is a very live underdog and i will say just if you want assurance i even think that under two uh under four and a half is a solid spot too around that plus 185 mark as i do think that marina rodriguez similar to phil haas if he gets the finishes or she gets the finish it's going to be early here and then if uh Dalkis or watterson get the finish it's going to be a little bit later on in the fight and i think it's going to come via submission here for watterson so in terms of props that i'm liking for this fight like i said under four and a half uh plus 185 uh michelle watterson inside the distance is plus 650 crazy number there michelle watterson specifically by by, by submission plus 800 all the way up to plus 1000 on a couple books and then it's round props right we want to talk about racking up round props we got some beauty numbers here plus 2200 round three for watterson plus 2800 for round four watterson and plus 3300 for watterson in round five personally on intertops i got plus 4000 on round four and round five and then i believe i got plus uh 3300 on round three i've already placed those bets I'm pretty sure Watterson wins this fight as long as she doesn't get starched early in this fight. Uh, and I think she's serviceable enough on the feet to avoid those big shots. So uh, talk me down. Am I too high on the Watterson orders here? Or is this another solid dogger pass situation? Yeah, so I actually did agree. And then when I did the show yesterday, I had Michelle Watterson live underdog. I think that would be the official play. But like, I don't know. I am starting to get cold feet about it. The one the one concern that I do have for Watterson is that even though we're all giving her this you know, cardio advantage and she's going to take this into deeper waters and she's going to win, you know, rounds four, five, three, four, and five. Like she does actually tend to take a little bit of damage. The longer fights progress herself. As far as she's being the karate hottie, she's is a, is a karate stylist. She's a striker by nature. It's like, she's really kind of gotten away from that in her, in her last few fights. She's looking to get these fights to the ground a lot more actively. What's concerning for me when I look at Michelle Watterson though, is her uh, fight with Carla Esparza. So we know Carla Sparza can wrestle. We know she's a former world champion, but her striking's not very good at all. So in that fight, Carla Sparza, the first round, gets a takedown against Michelle Watterson. Second round, she can't take her down anymore. Michelle Watterson's takedown defense is, is holding up. So Sparza abandons wrestling and just re resorts to just moving straight forward and clubbing her. And boy, oh boy, it works with tremendous effectiveness. She handily wins the third round, just bopping her, and then ends up winning a split decision out of it. The Angela Hill fight... Very close fight. But you talked about it. She's got underrated wrestling. She was one for 18 on takedown attempts against Angela Hill, who has been making improvements, but is not exactly known for the takedown defense. So she got outstruck by Angela Hill. Half of the media members scored the fight for Hill. It was a very close fight. Could have gone either way. Uh, it shows that she could go five rounds. That's important. But Angela Hill's not that big power puncher, more of a volume girl. And again, close fight where she did get outstruck by her. I just keep going back to that Carlos Sparza fight where it's like an aggressive fighter that comes forward on you can certainly uh, mix it up and make it happen. Marina Rodriguez should be able to do that. As far as them both fighting at 125, it should factor in for Marina Rodriguez. She's the bigger fighter. 
Um, she's taller. She's thicker. She's got a longer frame. Coming up to 125 shouldn't be the worst for her. She's actually fought previously in her career as high as 122 back in Brazil. And you mentioned with Waterson, she's fought at 105 pounds. So again, I think that the slight advantage would be for Rodriguez. But the when size, usually size factors in a lot more when you're looking to grapple, right? It's harder to take down a bigger opponent. So Waterson jumping up an extra 10 pounds, I don't think that favors her. I think it would favor Rodriguez and Rodriguez's ability to keep this fight standing. If the fight does keep standing, I think Rodriguez got the power and, and should be able to hurt her. But I agree with the assessment of like, this is a five-round fight. Rodriguez hasn't fought five rounds. And you look at the Cynthia Calvillo fight. She's up the first two rounds over Calvillo. And then the third round, holy shit, 10-8 Calvillo. Whoa, she could have been stopped, right? But uh, so one-sided, it's a 10-8 round, then is a draw. Her fight with Carlos Esparza is the same thing. You know, she starts off very well against Esparza, but the later the fight goes, she starts to fatigue and she starts to get hit. There's no denying that there's some potential there. I mean, she's got wins over Tisha Torres. That's a legit win. Uh, oh, She's up two rounds against Cynthia Calvillo before Gas Tank fell apart. And then, you know, a split decision loss to Carlos Esparza. Again, a lot of people scored it for her. And then she springs an upset over Amanda Hebus. You had her in that upset over Hebus because even though the record didn't look super pretty, you were acknowledging all the same things I'm talking about. Fuck, dude, a, a closely contested split decision to Esparza? That's legit. A fight where you you were up two rounds against Cynthia Calvillo? That, that's legit. These are these are good luck. A win over Tisha Torres? My God, Rodriguez is heading in the right direction. And uh, you called it. She got the win over Hebus. So now coming into this spot, it's like, does she keep that momentum going? She got to keep this fight standing. She's got to be able to hurt her. And she's got to be able to fight for five rounds, which I'm not entirely sure of. So again, I, I'm not going to disagree with the with the live underdog assessment. What I am going to say is if you're looking to take the live underdog, I think you take it after the first or second round. I think Rodriguez has a good first round. She probably wins the first two. And then you're banking on Watterson, taking this in deep, deeper waters, tying her out, getting a late stoppage. Or just winning those last three rounds and, and taking the victory. There's not a prop. There's not a single prop I love on this fight. Uh, I, I want to take a poke at that fight goes the distance, but it's my it's two to one. It's just not there's just not enough meat on the bone there for me. But again, we got 125 pound girls. Chances are it's going to bank some rounds in at the very least. Rodriguez can hit, she can crack, but Watterson's got a good chin. Watterson's got good grappling, better wrestling. Let's say uh, if she tires her and gets her on the ground, could get her a finish. But we've also we've also seen Rodriguez. Uh, struggle get tired get beat up before and not get finished so i'm just hoping that it banks up some rounds and i'm going to hit some overs uh just quick question here and then we'll move on to the uh the three best bets that we have um I've seen some takes around the grapevine that they believe that the cardio struggles that Rodriguez has had in the past will benefit from the fact that she doesn't have to cut the extra 10 pounds. Do you believe in that narrative? Personally, I don't believe in it. I don't think that it's going to make much of a difference. I think if you have cardio issues, it's, you're going to have cardio issues regardless. Maybe she might be able to go for an extra two, three more minutes longer without showing those cardio issues. But if you have cardio issues, you're going to have cardio issues at any weight class. What merit do you put into her going up a weight class here and how would it potentially affect her cardio? Yeah, I mean, you're probably going to have the same issues as you talked about. I mean, we looked at last week at Luke Sanders. Luke Sanders has cardio issues. He has cardio issues at 135 pounds. He took that fight last week at 145 pounds against Felipe Corrales. You know, there was, he believed certainly that it would help him and that he wouldn't tire out. And, you know, about three minutes into the first round, he was tired. Uh, <laughs> even though you're jumping up a weight class, you're now dealing with a bigger opponents. When you're dealing with bigger opponents, it's going to be more tiring. They're stronger in the clinch. They're more physical. All the, but now because she's not fighting a bigger opponent, She's not going to have to worry about that stuff. And honestly, seeing at the scales, go back and rewatch any of her weigh-ins. She definitely does look zapped. She does look like she's somebody that cuts a lot of weight. As I mentioned, she did fight as high as 122 in Brazil. Um, I, I, I could see it being a difficult enough weight, uh, weight cut. When you see her, like, the when she was standing next to Cynthia Calvillo, Calvillo bailed out of the weight class. Cutting down was too much for her. She fights at 125 now, right? She did not look out of place. 
Hervis is Tisha Torres, who's a muscular but short opponent. I mean, she looks big and strong. Hervis is Carlos Sparger. He looks big and strong. She looks like she has a size advantage over all of her opponents. So at 125, not having to cut the weight, what I would theorize is at the very least, this is a girl that walks around in the streets at 135, 140 maybe, and then cuts 10, 15 pounds to make that 115 pound limit. Whereas Michelle Watterson, she's she's five foot three, right? Like she's not exactly a huge stature. When she was fighting at 105, she's probably cutting 10, 15 pounds. But now that she fights at at, uh, at, at straw weight, I just don't think she has a huge weight cut. Her coming in at flyweight, I mean, definitely wait to see the scales. Is she going to come in at 123, 122? Like, is she even going to make that 125 pound limit? Potentially. But once you see that, that, that square off and you see that stare down, I think you're going to be a noticeable size difference for Marina Rodriguez. Do I buy into that narrative that she'll have better cardio up a weight class? I, I am kind of buying into the narrative. This two to one price tag is atrocious. It's egregious. I don't want to bet Marina Rodriguez. But again, so many underdogs on this card. Watterson is one of them with potential, but I don't think I'm going to make her an official underdog selection. I could go back and forth in this one. Clearly, as I, I'm very uh, iffy, and as I mentioned, I have cold feet. I'm kind of going back and forth in my own mind, but I think there's just a lot of better fights this weekend to, to focus on than a closely contested five-round women's main event. I agree. There, there's so many live underdogs on this card, so I don't blame you for, for, for taking a pass on this. All right, let's get to our three best bets, and then we'll get the hell up on out of here. As always, I'll kick things off. First one that I got, Kyle Douglas by sub, plus 250. I think that's a pretty good line here, considering I think that he'll be able to take the power of Phil Oz early and then eventually submit him later on in this fight. I think he'll be able to hit some reversals if he ends up on his back, or he'll be offensive enough off of his back to catch Phil Oz in something who's going to be second wind by that sixth and seventh minute. Does he get nuked early in that fight? It's a possibility, which is why I feel much more compelled to take the under two and a half. But if you guys are looking for specific props, I think Douglas by sub is the most likely outcome here. Next up. Hell via Kale. You guys know I had to give that shit to you guys. I do think that she puts the pressure and uh, lands those big shots on Hibas, putting her on wobbly legs. I don't think Hibas likes getting hit. I don't think she reacts well to getting hit by a proper puncher. And don't tell me that Mackenzie Dern is a proper puncher because we saw what happens when she goes up against somebody that actually knows how to throw a punch. And that was Marina Rodriguez. I will say this. Rodriguez probably does hit much harder than Hill, but you can't deny the fact that Hill has been hurting and uh, not putting away women, but really hurting women in her last couple of fights. And I think those women are much more durable than what we're getting here with Amanda Hiba. So yeah, I like Hill by KO at plus 700. And obviously I got to give you guys one more crazy uh, spot here. I got Watterson by a submission at plus 800. I think it's a very viable spot. Even though women have not been able to finish Marina Rodriguez in the UFC up until this point, I think that the extra 10 minutes that we're going to be getting on this fight will eventually open up that submission opportunity for Watterson, who has already gone five rounds numerous times, who has already shown solid cardio for 25 minutes. We haven't seen that cardio from Rodriguez. And from all indications, it seems like she starts to slow down in that third minute so or, or that third round. So now you're telling me uh, low uh, or sorry, short notice here for Rodriguez, 10 more minutes of fight time. I think the, the submission ends up opening itself up and we see Watterson lock that shit up. All right, Cody, you're up here. Yeah, I'm having a sweat here because if you would tell me that Kamaro and Muhammad Usman were related, <laughs> it, they didn't look identical and sound identical, I would not believe you. Like, my, <laughs> my. Well, I just missed it. It's not like he's getting torched. It's just that like everything is so predictable from the outside. He can't wrestle. He tried one shot and it was super lackluster. Like, didn't even <laughs> probably commit to it. He just swings the same overhand right. He's got no idea how to close any of this distance. His jabs are no good. He still could theoretically win, 
yeah. he's going to really need this 40-year-old sales to get real tired because <laughs> he's not looking particularly good. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk, talk about lumbering heavyweights that should get real tired. Uh, that's what we got here. We got we got Linz versus Rothwell fight goes the distance minus 155. What we're hoping is both guys are going to get fatigued early on in this fight. It's going to slow down the pace. It's going to be a lot more lumbering, and we're going to bank some rounds in. Ben Rothwell, as much as he was a potent finisher at one time in his career, he's definitely slowed down a lot in recent years, and uh, the finishes don't necessarily materialize quite as often. He himself, though, legendary durability. Doesn't get knocked out, doesn't get submitted, is very tough to put him away. So if Linz wins, Linz is going to have to settle for a decision. What I'm hoping is that Linz's questionable durability holds up this time around. Rothwell a little bit too slow, doesn't find the target. We get a fight goes the distance. Talking about fight goes the distance, let's hit up another one. Neil Magny, Jeff Neal, fight goes the distance, minus 125. Again, Neil, as you talked about, has been knocked out twice in his career, but Santiago Ponzinibbio, Lorenz Larkin, like, okay, let's talk about clean, precise, accurate, sniper-like strikers. Yeah, he's been knocked out by those guys, but he's done a, come a long way at neutralizing opponents. He's got good grappling. He's got a smothering game. Great cardio coming out of Colorado. Elevation fight team. Trains with guys like Drew Dober and Justin Gaethje on the regular. You know he's going to be well-prepared, as he always is. Getting a little bit older, but don't tell that to Neil Magny. I mean, he thinks he's still got some good fights left ahead of him. This is a good spot. But again, this is going to cover me on both sides. If Neil Magny gets the victory, I think he's just going to grind down Jeff Neal, stay to the outside, use that long jab, pick up some points, get the judges nod. If Neil's going to win, he's going to back him up, lend the more telling blows, you know, be the aggressor. But again, I don't think he puts him away. For that reason, whoever wins, this fight's hitting the distance. And get that at minus 125. And then, come on, got to get a plus money play in here at some point. So I'm going with Harris. Harris by submission. First fight of the card. So, I mean, it'd be a good way to kick it off, certainly. But uh, this guy's got a nasty Dars choke, man. He loves to attack the neck. Once he finds a hold of it, once he gets a handful of your neck, I mean, that's it. He, he's able to put the squeeze and put you away. But he seems very strong in the clinch. Decent enough wrestling, but mostly relies on that strength and that aggression. It's when the fight does hit the ground. He's got good cardio and really strong uh, top game. So I think with Christian Aguilera, he's going to give up the takedowns. We saw in the Brady fight, he gave them up relatively easy. But once he was on his back, he had no game. Harris gets his fight to the ground, smothers him the first round, tires him out a little bit. In the second round, Aguilera, as he starts to become desperate, and he knows he's got to make something happen, he'll try to scramble and get back to his feet. When he does try to create space and scramble, that's when his neck will be vulnerable. That's when it'll be exposed. And hopefully that's when Harris locks it up. Submission plus 165. I like it. I like it. Love having those kind of safer spots. And then obviously that plus money play from you. All right. That's pretty much a wrap on the propping you up show cody i'll give you the the platform on the back end here just to plug whatever you want to plug say whatever you want to say and then i'll wrap this pitch up yeah so i mean again good combat sports weekend uh thanks for having me on the show as always love catching up with you on thursdays and talking about these props and yeah hopefully we have make it a profitable weekend if you got any questions causes or concerns hit me up on twitter at cj saftik love to talk some fights and then yeah in the meantime hopefully Uzma was the second round and we can take it to the third maybe uh, but yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining the chat or catching the replay, however your favorite method of watching the show and uh, giving us some su support. Always appreciate it. For sure. All right. As always, you can find him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. You guys can find me at MMALOTN on Twitter. And obviously, you guys can catch us every Thursday night right here, 8 p.m. Eastern, propping you up for the show. Again, appreciate everybody in the chat, everybody watching on the replay, audio, podcast, whatever the hell it is. Appreciate you guys watching it. Uh, like, subscribe, do all that shit. Tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, Ultimate Weigh-In Show, Newsome MMA, Notorious Picks, and uh, AJ Sholor are going to be joining me to break down the fight. So one last time for you guys. As always, appreciate you guys checking out the show, and we will see you guys next week.